You are listening to episode 367 of the New World Order. This is Clatu, and in this episode, I'm going to talk about Debian, which I don't normally talk about, to be honest, because it's not really something that I choose to run most often. It's not my go-to distribution. My go-to distribution, as you may know if you listen to this podcast frequently, is Slackware. And and I'll admit that after Slackware, my, my, my fallback Linux distribution would probably be something like Red Hat or Fedora, but that doesn't change how I feel about Debian, which is that it's an amazing project, and it happens to be on 16 August, happens to be Debian's birthday. They're something like 27 years old as of this recording, which uh, is pretty impressive, I think. I think it's, it's, it's time maybe to talk about Debian a little bit, because there are lots of things that I really, really like about Debian, and I want to kind of convey why it's such a significant and important project. So, number one, first of all, it has been around a long time, and that's 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 no small feat. The fact, I mean, you know, on one hand, you think, well, it's kind of arbitrary how long it's been around. I mean, something happens to be around 27 years versus 10 years, I mean, versus five years, what's the big deal? It's just, there are lots of factors that go into that. For instance, you might, at some point, you could have said, well, uh, Mandriva is a wonderful and time-honored distribution. It's been around for a long time. I mean, heck, I guess you could still say that. You could say th- something like, oh, Mag- Mag- Magia has been around since 1998, which is when Mandrake was was created, or released, rather. And and I guess technically you would be correct, but, but there is something different about being able to say, no, Debian, this project has been around 27 years. The processes that they have established and the, the way that they do things and the structure that they're that they have created the infrastructure and the the philosophy behind what they're doing that's been around since 1993 which was like what two years after linux itself was was released i mean it's like the kernel i mean it's it's a big big deal now a couple of years ago i did a project for myself where i i took myself through linux history in i don't know a week or two or or three and i just i went way 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 way, way back into the archives and took old releases that like the first release of not the first release but but early releases of of all the major distributions that I could think of and just kind of went through from like 1992 to 3 to 4 to 6 to 8 you know skipped a couple but but generally it just kind of got a feel for the 90s got a feel for the two the early 2000s up at least I think until I don't know 2006 or so which is kind of when I started my Linux journey so at at that point I didn't need to recreate it because I'd lived it but um, I did that and it was a lot of fun and one of the I think the second oldest one that I tried was Debian I started with Slackware and then went to Debian and installed them into virtual machines you know and kind of got them up and running and just kind of poked around and tried to see what they were all about and i have to say that debian even way way back then it's it's i think it was the initial release or maybe the second release it was a really really nice little distribution i mean it felt like an os that had been around for a while and obviously it kind of had right because unix was around so they knew what they were aiming for and they were able to to recreate it relatively easy because there were the all the GNU utilities and then there was the kernel. I mean, everything had been kind of been set up, set out for them, and, and they assembled those pieces and called themselves Debian. But logging into that system, I just, I was surprised at how good it felt, like how familiar it felt to someone who'd been using Linux for many, many years at the, by, the, by that time, and also just someone familiar with with sort of Unix in general, Logging into that system, I, I I feel like I must have gotten a, a slight sense of what it must have been like for for people back then to log in to to Debian, or, you know, desktop Linux, and think, or I guess it wouldn't have been desktop Linux, I guess wouldn't have been the term, but you know, like 386 Unix, except it was Linux, must have been a big deal, right? Because I mean, here it is, you, you download it, you install it, and you're just thinking, oh this is it this is unix i mean it's it was brilliant it was really really nice and and it's continued from that point you know for starting out feeling like a well-worn distribution and then and then continuing and developing i mean i i forget when dpkg was integrated into it it, it was might have been by the time it might have been in the release that i tried actually uh it was a very different sort of beast at that point but but it was there, you know, this concept of package management was already there. And and they just they took all of these these concepts and 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 it developed and grew and became something 
different and something unique. And there is something to be said for that because it shows it shows a constant trajectory, and that's what Debian has going for it is this constant sort of you know the Debian way. Like this is how we do things in in the Debian distribution. This is the philosophy behind it. This is the cadence of releases. This is the life cycle of development. It's very impressive and not to be taken as lightly as I think it's kind of easy to take it sometimes if you you know because initially you want to just kind of see everything as equally valid but you know in terms of years but but there is something to be said for something that has been able to to continue for 27 years or or longer so it's a big deal that they're that they've been around a long time it is significant and i think it adds a little bit to that sense of security that one has when one looks at debian when you look at their, you know, when you're when you're pondering Debian as an option, you just kind of think, "Yep, that's Debian. I know if I choose that one, that would be a safe choice." There's such security in that sort of that sense of relief of just I don't have to worry about this. I can choose them, and I know that five years, seven years, ten years, fifteen years, I'll have made the right choice because they'll still be there. They'll still be going. They'll still be basically the same. Let's go with that. Okay, second point I wanted to make was that it's apparently easy to remix, and this is um, something that I I would love to know more about because I don't know if this if this feature of Debian is a technical feature, an organizational feature, or just a purely legal feature. I would really love to hear someone from Debian explain or theorize why it is that Debian is the I I. Th- feel like it's kind of the de facto choice of a distro remix. Now, my feelings about distros, about the the concept of the Linux distribution aside, and that is, by the way, I don't love it. I, I don't love that Linux has the concept of distributions and remixes of distributions. I mean, I love it because it means that people are being creative and free to be creative and so on. I don't love it as a thing because I think that there are more efficient ways to say, hey, here's my version of Linux, uh, which would, for the record, it would be install scripts or build scripts or theme packs and things like that. Uh, Anyway, oh, and package managers that are completely separate from from their foundation. But anyway... um, Apparently, Debian's easy to remix, and that's got to be a good thing, because if you really, really think about what that means, it means that Debian is is okay with being a support for others, and that's a really, really hard thing to do. I mean, if you think about it, and you don't have to think too hard about it, because it's pretty obvious, but Ubuntu was pretty famous for a while, and, I mean, Ubuntu probably, really, I mean, they, they made the biggest dent, I think, in public awareness of, of Linux out of anybody so far. And, well, maybe. No, I think that, yeah, I think it's safe to say that. I think, because, I mean, people who just didn't, don't even know what an OS is, they've heard of Ubuntu. And that's a huge service to the community, frankly. That's, that's some good marketing. But it couldn't have been easy for Debian, who built everything that Ubuntu sort of took and slapped some polish onto. They built all that stuff, and they didn't really get a whole lot of the press in return. Ubuntu was paying for marketing. Ubuntu got the press attention. People didn't know the name Debian. People don't even know how to say the name Debian, much less that the word exists at all. Ubuntu got all of that, and that can't be easy, but it's huge. It's a huge sort of sacrifice, really, to be able to to work quietly on something while a bunch of other people make a lot of noise over in the corner, and they're getting all that attention, and you're just toiling away, shoveling your work into their their marketing machine. It's it's got to be a little bit tough, and and there are arguments on both sides of this sort of this made up well not made up but this this slightly hyperbolic drama that I'm that I'm relaying here. Obviously, Ubuntu um, contributes back to has contributed back to Debian, and Debian contributes to Ubuntu in the in the sense that they're building Debian. So you know there there are lots of different sides of this coin. All I'm saying is that Debian serves as the basis for Ubuntu, and that's a big deal. They also serve as basis for uh, distributions like Elementary OS, which is kind of the new hotness, and much deservedly so. Um, Elementary OS is really, really nice, but it's it's built on Debian. They're, they're the foundation for Linux Mint, which kind of 
uh, I think among enthusiasts has kind of taken some of the um, the hype away from Ubuntu uh, in in recent years. But uh, I don't I don't think by any means that they've they've captured that kind of same um, sort of pop culture zeitgeist that Ubuntu managed to get. Uh, Pop OS, I guess, is technically based on Debian. That's the System76 OS. But then there are there are others that are maybe even more surprising. For instance, Steam OS, which is Valve's operating system upon which they are upon which they built their Steam-centric operating system, I guess. Um, and well, their yeah, their Steam distribution, I guess, um, which was going to be the OS or is the OS, I guess, for for Steam machines, which uh, you know we kind of thought we we thought that was going to enter the console market. Uh, and sort of the console wars didn't really happen. Not really sure to this day what Valve's game plan is there. Um, but luckily this isn't an episode about Valve, so I don't have to theorize. So there's SteamOS based on Debian. Originally it was based on Ubuntu, but they decided to just flip all the way back to Debian, and that's what they were basing it on to this day. Slacks, which was built previously upon, as the name suggests, Slackware, rather recently decided that it was just kind of easier to maintain it if they based it on Debian. Um, actually, that's not that's not exactly... I should probably get the exact quote or something, but I, I don't know where to find it offhand. But um, I think the packages of Debian was a big persuasion thing for, for rebasing slacks uh, onto Debian. I believe that was one of the things that Thomas, the, um, the maintainer of slacks, cited. It was just that with Debian, you inherit, you know, tens of thousands of packages whereas with slackware you you only get whatever's in 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 slackware and uh, slackbuilds.org so that might have been a big part of that um, but the the point remains i think which is debian's remixable debian is a foundational kind of technology whether debian sort of means to be or not and like i say i don't know if it's a technological thing where they they've organized their init sequence or their init process in such a way that it's just easier to sort of build off off of that to make your remix, or whether it's purely a um, a legal thing where it's just it happens to be that because it's licensed in such a way, or you know all the all the packages that they're using are licensed in in certain ways, so you can count on it being a safe thing to remix, or or whether it's simply because when you decide to remix Debian, you don't have to go through any kind of uh, legal things in order to get permission to do. I don't know. I don't know the the reasoning. I would I would not mind hearing about more of that from from someone involved with Debian, but um, I, I haven't really looked into it because I don't care ultimately. The point is that you know the results kind of speak for themselves, and that is that people like to build on Debian, and that's a that's that's a big gift that the Debian community grants to Linux. To, to Linux desktop users and server users. It's just, here's here's this thing, and if you want to change it into your own thing, you're free to do so. Okay, so my third point is um, kind of related to all of this, and that is that Debian is um, relatively ownerless. So when I say that, you know, things like, oh, Debian must have, must have been hard for Debian to see Ubuntu getting all the press... Well, who's Debian? Um, so Debian isn't owned by anyone. It it has a project lead or a project manager or whatever, but but it, there's no one person who sort of owns and orders people around within Debian. And the magnitude of that is a little bit difficult to understand unless you really kind of get to know other projects well enough to recognize the difference. And, I mean, you can't look at Slackware by any means and say that no one owns Slackware, because someone definitely owns Slackware, and that would be Patrick Volkerding. He's the guy maintaining Slackware. There are ways to contribute to that by making contact with him and 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 filing bug reports on linuxquestions.org and so on, but th- there's, there's ultimately one captain on this ship, and that is Patrick Volkerding. Ubuntu is the same way, or it was the same way when they when they were still doing desktop stuff. Well, I guess they're still doing desktop stuff, but um, it, I don't know how big of a deal within the organization that is anymore. Um, but they, they have Mark Shuttleworth, who's steering that ship. I mean, that if something 
if there's a question as to whether something needs to be sort of to get focus in Ubuntu, uh, then Mark Shuttleworth gets to decide that ultimately. And the same the same thing really sort of goes for Fedora. I mean, Fedora is uh, it has governance and it has a, a board of, of of people who are some of whom work at Red Hat, some of whom intentionally do not work at Red Hat. So you've you've got that intentional split, but there's still a there there's the Red Hat presence on the board and there are lots of Red Hat people working at Red Hat working on Fedora as well. And so it's it's the nature of a business is that if you want something done without question and usually pretty quickly because you get to you get to tell people to focus on that thing for for all day until they get it done then then in the modern world the way that you do that is you throw money at it. And so if you have an entity that's throwing money at something then there's there's whether there's governance or not there there's a there's a concentrated effort being driven and motivated by by something external than than sort of the the quote unquote purity of just having spare time and hacking on it whenever you like. And and as cool as it is to hack on something just whenever you get whenever you're in the mood to do that um it 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 does it it has blockades to it i mean if you cannot afford in a moment to to work on that side project then it doesn't get done so in fedora and in ubuntu and and in SUSE and all these big distributions that have some kind of corporate sponsorship that happens because someone is able to pay other people to work on a thing for them it's perfectly acceptable. I'm not criticizing that. I think that it's a great way to get certain things done relatively quickly. Sometimes things happen relatively quickly just because people are. They're, they're very passionate about it. They have time, and they all come together and do it, and it happens. But other times, that that's not how it occurs, and someone has to pay for it. And the people paying for it are going to be Red Hat, Canonical, or Seuss. Now, in Debian, that does not exist. Luckily, because it's open source, Debian can benefit from some of that. I mean, there's plenty of technology out there that I don't think would have, if it had just been up to Debian to create it from scratch and to, to get it done and to get it integrated, it would have either not happened or it would have taken a lot longer to happen. But there are huge benefits in modern Linux that that exists in Debian right now because someone else paid for it. But the project, the project, the, the Debian project itself, they they don't have anyone driving a and I guess an agenda within Debian, which which you know it sounds like a benefit, but it's also kind of a scary thing. I mean, if you really look at it analytically, you sometimes someone driving an agenda is important. I mean, that provides focus and clarity and and um and it directs energy towards something that needs to be done. So I mean. That that can be a good thing sometimes, but but Debian doesn't have that. It doesn't have that external force saying, "Hey, Debian or fellow Debian creators, we need to we need to all focus on this thing so that this happens." So the the fact that it's ownerless, that that people don't have don't have full control over where Debian is going, is actually kind of a scary thing. I mean, if if you just think about how many cooks can be in a kitchen or how many People ought to be driving one vehicle. You just don't think of it as being something that is generally a desirable thing. But there are so many, obviously, moving parts to Debian, so many things that people can work on. As long as that all filters up into we're going to end up with a, a, a distribution that boots, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And it's, I think, very indicative of of why anarchism does work so well in software this this kind of well-defined goal and all of these different parts that need to go into creating that goal no matter who or where it's being done who, who's doing it or where it's getting done at um, it doesn't really matter as long as in the end everything's building correctly and booting correctly and so on and obviously there's there is a structure in debian it's not it's not total total anarchy as in you can't just wander into a server and make a commit and then wander out you you know there are there's a packaging um, there are packagers and you you have to sort of prove yourself to them and and get permission to do things without approval of others you know i mean that 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 all sort of that that makes sense that kind of um that that sort of chain of command or those those divisions of authority makes perfect sense that that kind of 
microcosmic ownership over, I guess, domain ownership it ma- makes makes sense, and it's kind of how things would uh, would need to happen. But the the truth still remains that there's no there there's no owner, there's no project owner, there's a project manager, and those are two totally different things. And I actually I learned this initially, actually, from the Fedora project, bizarrely, uh, from Paul Freelds specifically, because I was, um, I, I got to see Paul a lot at some conferences for a while, and, and I, it just kind of struck me, you know, trying to define exactly what it was that Paul did. And it, it kind of hit me that, that Paul, you know, doesn't do anything really as Fedora project lead. I mean, he's no longer the, Fedora project lead still involved with Fedora but he's not the project uh, lead that's Matthew Miller as of this recording but you know these these lead lead roles in 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 some of these software t- uh, domains you know they they're not they're not really they're not sitting down and writing code for instance they're not they're not directing people they're really it's a reactionary kind of position where you you look at what's happening and maybe you you help communicate between teams and you help remind people of different goals and milestones and so on but you're not you're not actually directing anything and i can only imagine how someone coming from traditional management would be able to wrap their head around around that reality of of not being able to order people around but still having to make all of those things work together and Debian does that on a massive scale. There's, there's no body driving. It's, it's everyone driving towards a common goal that has been defined previously. And, and the communication happens, and it's facilitated by a project manager. But no one is the boss of you. That's a huge, huge innovation that, that really I think Linux um, is able to, to kind of brag about. And, and certainly Debian uh, I guess arguably most of all. And then the the fourth point, I think I'm on point number four, is is one of the the really really big points, one of the important points I think. And this is the it's the point that really sort of made me think, you know what, I should talk about Debian. Um, and that is that Debian is the large scale massive embodiment of desktop Linux. And it you know it might be a little bit strange for me to say that because as I've said, I don't use Debian all that often. I mean I do if it if it's if it's the thing that runs on a computer, right? I mean, like if there's a computer that only runs essentially Debian, um, then then I run Debian, and I guess that's actually point number four. <laughs> point number four is the architecture support. Um, the architecture support behind Debian is amazing. If you have a computer that needs to run and you can't find any other modern OS that that it can respond to go to Debian. They have arch- they they support all the architectures, and it's astonishing what boots Debian. I mean, it is it's basically the NetBSD of Linux. Like you can just you can think what Linux would this run? First thing off the top of your head should be Debian. It will run Debian. If nothing else, it'll run Debian. And that's really 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 significant because. Especially in this day and age of so much technological waste, we call it e-waste at the time of this recording. Um, it's it's just horrible to throw something away that actually boots. I mean, if the thing powers on, it should not be going into a bin. So Debian can bring that thing back to life. And it, frankly, if it turns, if it if it powers on, then it shouldn't be running something other than Linux or or BSD, if you please. But it, it should be running free software, open source software. And and Debian is is kind of it would be the go-to. It would be the one that you could say, yep, it'll run that. So that one I think is probably honestly one of my well, I, I appreciate a lot of these things actually. I was going to say that's the thing I appreciate most, but it's going to be a tough call. So the, the so point five then is the thing that made me think to do this episode, which was that it is desktop Linux. And when I say that, what I'm trying to say is that it is the stalwart industry lead, without even being in the industry, for for providing a desktop experience for Linux. I mean, if you look at all the major players out there who are in the industry, they've all dropped. Well, they haven't dropped, but they've all... They've all quietly meandered away from desktop Linux. You look at uh, Ubuntu. They used to be the loudest, most the loudest and proudest of desktop providers. I mean, they were that was their that was their thing, right? Linux for humans, and 
you went to their their site and they made it very clear that you would you, that you were to download Ubuntu onto your and install it on your personal computer, your PC. They don't really do that anymore. They've shifted their attentions to server technology, for actually to cloud technology specifically. And you can tell if you go to their site, it, it's pretty clear. Red Hat famously many many years ago, back in 2005 or six dropped Red Hat. There is no Red Hat Linux anymore. You 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 might think that there's Red Hat Linux, but actually what there is is Red Hat Enterprise Linux, and that is very different than Red Hat Linux. So RHEL, Red Hat Enterprise Linux, they do provide desktops, and you can even get a support contract for it. So it's there, but if you go to their site, you'd never know it. You, you have to really dig around for it. And famously, what they did back in, I don't know, 2005 or 2006, whatever it was, is that they released Red Hat Linux, or they rather they they stopped releasing Red Hat Linux, and they declared that Fedora was going to be the 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 community supported desktop Linux distribution sponsored by Red Hat, and that's what Fedora is. It is the it, it or ostensibly that's what Fedora is. Um, I mean, I I think I would argue and do argue very often that Fedora is not really that. It's not it's it's not the not the consumer grade desktop Linux that 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 you really want to promote because I mean it's 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 being updated like almost daily like it's changing it's almost a rolling release without being a rolling release so I don't think Fedora is exactly you know you wouldn't go to the store and, and pay 100 or 200 whatever an OS costs these days um, for a Fedora disk because it would just shift around from out, out from under you all the time constant constant updates now to Fedora, many Fedora users, myself included, back back when I when I was um, doing this, um, that's a feature, right? Like these constant updates mean that you have the latest version of the software all the time, and and it is it's pretty neat. It's pretty cool to be to be on the cutting edge like that. But but it also means that you're on the cutting edge. So Red Hat, Ubuntu, they've both functionally dropped support for the desktop. SUSE is pretty good. They they've they've stayed in the game in terms of um of actually acknowledging that some people want a desktop. Um but yeah, Ubuntu and, and Red Hat certainly have, have kind of meandered away and, and I think there's an argument that SUSE that even SUSE you know, business wise they've they they really do concentrate on the server space pretty heavily in the cloud space. And and I think that's my point, is that Corporate Linux these days. I mean, look at the Linux Foundation. The the CEO or whatever he calls himself of the Linux Foundation um, brings a Mac to every every event that he attends. Like he's never on a Linux computer, and he has gone on record saying that that Linux desktop Linux just isn't a, isn't what matters. So corporate involvement of of Linux. On a desktop machine like your laptop or your your the computer sitting on your desk, whatever it it's it's basically not it, that's not a market that is not a market that that really really exists. You've got you got people giving it their best effort. You've got System76 with Pop OS trying to do their darndest to make really really and they do great. I mean they they make amazing computers and they provide a, an amazing desktop experience. Um, but they're they're not obviously the you know they're not quite a canonical yet or or a red hat so corporate linux involvement they've it, it has walked away from the desktop experience if you want a pc with linux on it companies out there working on linux don't have a whole lot to offer you whereas debian continues to be debian for desktops for servers for the cloud it doesn't matter they're concentrating on using linux on your pc they're concentrating on making sure that you have a desktop in front of you that is up to date and modern and that's a big big deal because it it is an example of where capitalism has utterly failed right capitalism says okay well we wanted this thing we wanted this desktop experience but we don't feel like the numbers are there for whatever reason i mean i guess ultimately it boils down to the dollars but but for whatever reason the numbers aren't where we need them to be to continue that effort so we're going to walk away from it and they have they've noti- noticeably done that and debian with this with its massive community and massive developer um, base has picked up the slack and that's an amazing, amazing service to the whole Linux community. I mean, I'm not saying that without Debian there would be no desktop Linux. That would that's silly. I mean, obviously I'm running and using right now Slackware Linux. So I'm not saying that there would be no no Linux 
desktop without Debian. I'm simply saying that they are they are maintaining that that they 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 remain a force for desktop Linux, and that's an important important role to play because that's what a community is all about. Is when when the when these little fake little structures that we construct that we that we build up for ourselves like businesses and corporations that are that are supposed to be sort of useful when they falter and when they when they fail to deliver something you'd better have a solid community behind you ready to provide that service instead and debian has okay so um we're going to take a coffee break because that's what we do and then we'll come back and i'm going to talk about stability because i have lots of thoughts about stability in debian coffee and I uh, wanted to talk about stability with my coffee. So stability is one of those things that people kind of throw around in the Linux world because well everyone knows that your OS is supposed to be stable and no one knows it quite like a systems administrator but everyone sort of likes the idea of stability. No one exactly knows what stability means however they just know it's a good thing. And this isn't this is for good reason. This is it's a complex concept stability. I mean stability when you when you, when you initially hear the word I feel like you think okay stable means in software terms not crashing. So you think okay, so if I have Debian, it will never crash. And I think that's a fair assessment. That's a fair initial reaction to that term. Stability means your software won't crash. That's good enough. That works. Debian stable won't crash often. Yeah, we could we could broadly make that assumption. To be fair, we could broadly make that assumption about a lot of Linuxes, to be honest, in my experience. I don't know if that's the most important expression of Debian's strong features is is that it is quote-unquote stable because it's yeah it's a Linux kernel it's hard to to crash the Linux kernel Uh, I mean it's not a challenge I'm not saying go out and try it I'm just saying it it tends to outside of a kernel panic you don't you don't tend to it doesn't really crash all that often applications running on top of that kernel could crash so now is that part of the the term stability well, actually, yeah, it is. And if you if you look at the Debian um, the the Debian lifecycle, you realize that it is able to be seen as a stable thing because they don't make changes frequently throughout the course of its of its uh, of its support. So you you install let's say you you install Debian ten for five years or or whatever whenever the next one's ready for a very long span of time you you don't see many changes there are some updates there are some upgrades here and there there are certainly security patches but generally speaking you install the thing and that is your os for for several years and they're able to say that that is stable because when you turn on the computer in 2018 it is functionally the same as when you then turn it on in 2020 and that's a beautiful thing and and that's what i personally expect out of my operating system to be honest um you know i think a lot of linux users we go through phases um and certainly when you first discover linux i think especially because a lot of times discovering linux is also the time that you're discovering sort of like oh my gosh i can play around on computers i can do all kinds of things on computers i I didn't know i could do that kind of discovering the hackability of a computer because you've discovered linux and and everything's open these two things become a little bit conflated and you think well well what i want to do on a computer is just play on the computer so if something works one day and then stops working the next day because it got updated and something has changed well in a way nothing could be more fun for you it's like a puzzle every day it's like a it's like a new challenge because you launched um you know your music player on monday and it worked perfectly all day and then on tuesday you launched it and it's crashing every 10 minutes that's weird what could it be why don't you try to fix it and then on wednesday it's working again because you fixed it on tuesday and then on thursday it got updated again and now it won't even launch well that's that's weird why don't you go try to fix that? So it's it's a lot of fun, you know. That instability is is just it's a it's it's a lark, entertaining, 
It's a game. And that's, I mean, certainly that's how I felt about Fedora for a very long time. I just loved the instability of Fedora. I loved the fact that they would throw updates at you every week, multiple times a week. And I just thought that was so cool. But then as a Linux user, you eventually sort of, maybe you start to mellow out a little bit. Maybe you start to focus on something. You're focusing on development, or you're focusing on making multimedia, or maybe you're unfocused and you try to do both. Um, Not that I know anyone like that, but you're you're doing different things. You're, You're no longer exploring just like the fact that you can fix things on your computer when they break. You're now trying to use your computer to do things. And so those little breakages, those little quirks here and there, they start to become less fun because now they're keeping you from doing the the new things that you want to focus on. And I think when you reach that point, if you reach that point, not everyone does, people are different, you might never focus on something and you might just say, well, I really just enjoy using Linux and I I don't mind these little breakages because it gives me an excuse to learn new stuff and on how to fix stuff. And then you're a domain expert on those little quirks, like how do you fix this? Oh, that's an RC file in your dot dot in your home dot local slash config blah blah. Or well, it wouldn't be config and local. It would be dot local slash maybe share whatever it might be. So you don't necessarily ever grow out of that. But if you do grow out of that, and the breakages and the quirks and the little things start to become an annoyance, then you start looking for something quote unquote stable so that you can do things that that are more important to you than other things. And Debian provides that. Debian gives you that option. Now, you can certainly, you can go to Debian, uh, what is it, SID, I think, right? Because SID is always breaking toys or something. So SID, you can go to Debian SID and and run that, and then you maybe you'll get some of those breakages. You can start helping develop Debian. You know, you can report the bugs when they happen, and you can fix things, and submit patches, and, and so on. But you you also always have the, the option of, of not running Debian SID, and you're running just Debian, and it is stable. So to me, I guess stable means that you have a foundation that does not change often. And I think the ideal scenario, the, the ideal setup, at least for me, is that you've got a foundation that doesn't change frequently, but you are designed such that you enable selective instability as the user may need it. So in other words, you you can provide people a foundation that's going to be the same from week to week, from year to year. But those little things that they want to run on top of that foundation can go crazy. They can they can do whatever they want to with those pieces. And sometimes that's a difficult thing, and I think to be fair, I think that a lot of Linux distributions struggle with that. And and frankly, I think Debian has traditionally struggled with that as well. Um they've got they've got apt that's pretty pretty tightly bound into their operating environments. They don't you know, if you, if you want to to get wild and crazy with um a, an application on Debian, then you can go to Debian, you can apt install it with with apt but you're getting the that stable version, the old one, the one that doesn't change. It's part of the foundation. There, there's a conflict. You got the stable foundation which you want, but you want the ability to do whatever you want with that one application or with that one set of applications. But as I've found lately, Debian and RHEL, CentOS, Slackware, a lot of these sort of traditionally very or famously rather very stable platforms, these stable foundations, have kind of inherited these these cool abilities to separate the stable foundation from the, the opt-out of stability platform that you're actually running. And the way that I've done this recently, and I've talked about this in previous episodes too, how I do this with RHEL, I've got the OS, and it is stable, and there's a bunch of stuff in the repository, and maybe there's not a bunch of stuff in the repository. In the case of RHEL and CentOS, you're, you're actually, you're kind of wanting for applications, to be honest. They don't have the, you know, 50,000 software packages that Debian is able to boast. So you've got this stable foundation with either package that are way too stable, and that that's happened for me with with Debian. I mean, there have been things where Debian's been great on a Pi or on some Pi-like device or uh, some old old laptop, and then I want to install the latest version of of some application, and you just realize that they don't have that version. They're they're way way behind, like three years behind, and you think, well, why didn't they? Why have they not updated this application? Well. It's because they're stable, and they're famously stable, and they don't just go in and willy-nilly change applications because 
because that, you know, they don't know that that's the one application that you would really prefer to have updated for you. So it doesn't happen. That's when the, the word stable starts to sound a lot more like old and crusty and out of date, grumpy terms like that. There are new systems that have come around recently, some, some so new that they um, are, I don't know, 10 or 20 years old. Lately, what I've been doing with, with Debian boxes and is I'll, I'll install the stable OS onto the, the computer. On top of that, I, I lay a very thin veneer of package source, and I place very carefully a pleasant design of Flatpak and or Snapcraft. So if you have no idea what I just said, um, package source I've covered in a previous episode. Package source is a repository of software managed by the NetBSD folk. It's a it's a pretty sizable repository. I think I saw the number 40,000, but I could have only seen, I don't know, 20,000. I don't know. It was a lot. It was a big number. There's a lot of software in there. It is aware that it could be built for BSD, for Linux, for other operating systems as well. The make files are quite, quite sane. That's not to say that they always work. I will say that. I will say that not everything always works as expected without any modification. And there are things that are missing. You're going to find something that's not in package source. Package source, by the way, if you want to check it out, is pkgsrc.org package source. The setup is, I would say, non-trivial. Well, I mean, once you do it, it's non-trivial, but understanding the difference between how package source works and how apt or DNF works, it is, it, you have to step back and kind of learn some new concepts. The nice thing about package source is that by nature, it confines itself to slash user slash local. That's its environment. And so you can have, for instance, your, your stable foundation, your base of, of Debian on a computer. And you know that that foundation functionally is basically not going to change. Like everything there is going to pretty much stay the same from 2018 to 2022 or 2028, who knows? That won't change. It'll get essential updates. It'll get some updates here and there, but but it's going to lag behind every all the development that you see in the world. And mostly you're not going to ever care about that. Like, that's the thing that makes the computer turn on, you know, and that's fine. So that is your, that essentially is your kernel. You're now running a Debian kernel. I mean, not really, but you know what I mean? Like, that's, that's the firmware. That's the read-only part of your OS. And then what I've done lately is I, I install package source, and I'll go into package source, and I'll, I'll find something that I need. Let's say, um, I was going to say GIMP, but now I'm realizing I would do that with a flat pack, so... Well, I don't know. Who cares? Uh, let's call it uh, foo. So you, you you want to install foo, but you, you know that foo requires libpng. Now you see that on Debian you already have libpng, but it's version 0.12 or something, or 12 maybe, I don't know. Um, and in package source it's 14, which is lucky because that's what foo requires is libpng version 14, and you've only got 12 on the Debian system. So you might for a moment experience some discomfort because you think, oh, but I already have libpng installed. Well, don't worry about it. You're going to have two libpngs installed now. One is going to live in user local, and one is going to live out on your Debian system, and that's fine. Just be okay with, with the duplication. It'll make your life so much easier. And so I install foo and libpng14 on in within the package source environment. And since I have user local bin in my path as as part of the installation process, then when I launch foo, it, it, it knows to launch foo out of user local and, and it is built to look to the libpng that lives in user local and so on. So it's all relatively self-contained. Uh, now, not each application is self-contained, obviously, but but it is the user local environment is self-contained. It is an environment more or less of its own, and that's it's it it has been making it has been making my software management certainly on top of something that that may not keep up with with the latest editions of packages uh, quite nice, and and it has been it it's kind of given me this stable but not super stable kind of ability to to try out different software that maybe that maybe for whatever reason I don't like how Debian built it or or um, or maybe I just need something more recent than what Debian has available and that's the other thing that the package source thing is it, it does build from source so you can you can get in there and make the modifications that you want um, now, previous to package source, I had been using a hacked together version of Slack uh, Slack package, Slack PKG, which I hacked together for Debian. 
Um, I, I haven't used that in the past year, so I don't know what state it's in. It's on GitLab. Um, I I I may look at that again. The the kind of the 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 quote unquote problem with Slack package on Debian is that Slack package assumes that you're running Slackware underneath, so it doesn't necessarily know to look for certain certain things, and, and it's harder to kind of like say, okay, well, Slack package, I need you to just sort of focus on these libraries in this location. I mean, you can do it, but it's a very manual process, whereas package source, that's how it was built. It knows that it's going to live in user local or whatever prefix you define. You could put it in opt or whatever, but I just keep it in user local. And it, and and that's where its environment is, and and that's it's quite nice. Now for the the really wild and wacky things, I turned to either Flatpak or Snapcraft. Snapcraft being the canonical um, implementation of this sort of self-contained application framework. Flatpak being the I guess generic slash GNOME centric version of that. They both have their strengths. They both have their weaknesses. Actually, mostly Flatpak has its weak weaknesses. No, that's not true. Snap has a weakness, and it is canonical. But um, nothing against canonical. I just don't. I feel like canonical doesn't tend to stick with the projects that they start. So the long-term prospects of Snapcraft always make me nervous. But um, Snapcraft or Snap, whatever we are, we're calling it these days. It is quite nice because it's running a daemon, and so it knows where to look when you type in a command. It, it knows, oh, this is the snap that you're looking for. Let me direct you over here to the snap uh, framework, rather than looking in your path and launching it out of there. So that is a kind of a nice feature. Flatpak still has this sort of really laborious way of, of launching an application. You have to do like Flatpak run and then the full string, the full domain, the, like the reverse domain name of the project, like org gimp dot gimp one in lowercase one in capitals and you'll never keep straight which is which um either way though Flatpak and snap they both have this concept of support layers and so when you install something like gimp then it knows okay well you're installing like 2.10.18 of gimp so something very very recent as of the time of this recording um so we need to update this set of libraries that we that we'll keep in slash var slash lib slash flatpak or whatever so that this new version that you're running has all the libraries that it needs so it's it's containing it's it's installing applications essentially into a container on your on your computer which which means that you need a container like a you you need the stack of containers so gimp as a container isn't going to be able to run without the i don't know gnome 3.28 uh, SDK or whatever they're going to call it. So it can't run without those things, but because it knows exactly what it does need, you can, you can, someone can throw all of those libraries into a container and say, okay, well, anytime anyone installs GIMP, make sure that they also have this container so that it, that GIMP will launch and run. So it's all contained again, just like package source, um, all, only more so. And it's a great thing because you can, you can go straight to an application that you care about and update it to the version that you decide that you need, independently of the operating system or the developers behind the operating system or the packagers more likely behind the operating system, um, and 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 you can you can run as unstable just for that one application as you want, without jeopardizing sort of the stability of the rest of your system. So it's an exciting exciting little development, and I think that doing it this way for me at least has been a game changer. I mean, it, it really has changed. It shifted the way that I've been able to look at Debian because the more I can stay out of apt, uh, the better for me for for many reasons. I mean, not only because of the 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 UX for me is not optimal but also just because of that sort of that tight integration with the system and the stability of debian is something that i can appreciate and do appreciate because mostly when i install an operating system that i like what i see is what i like like that's the that's the part that i like about that os the applications are separate uh, i don't want to have to sort of conflate those two together i want those to be separate and package source and flat pack on top of something like debian it's a beautiful beautiful thing it's flexible and yet stable so if you if you have sort of trouble with some of the debian stability aspects uh, if you if you look at their package selection and just think oh those version numbers are really really old 
give it a shot. Give give it a go with uh, Package Source and Flatpak. I'm not saying that Package Source is the end all and be all. Um, in fact, I'm, I'm I'm definitely not saying that. There are certain aspects of Package Source that just they don't really work all that well for me. But between the two, Package Source and Flatpak, I've hit exactly the right mix of applications that I want to be more recent than what the base OS offers me. But but maybe that they're just you know they don't need to be like cutting edge i don't need the whole thing to be cutting edge i just need them to be sort of reasonably recent and i think package source does quarterly releases um and then and then flat pack for those things that i really just need to keep updated with that one application it's been really really nice to give that a go if you're struggling with stability of debian and if you're not struggling with the stability of debian that's great because that is one of its main selling features that's i think everything i have to say about debian Debian ought to be really, really proud of all of its accomplishments, and all of us Linux users, whether we use Debian on a daily basis or not, are greatly, greatly in its debt. So thanks, Debian, wherever you may be. Well, I guess it's it's nowhere, right? It's, it's everywhere. Debian is everywhere, so thank you, Debian. Okay, that's it, folks. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next week. Listening to the GNU World Order Cast. This has been Klaatu. You can reach me on IRC. I'm on the Freenode network usually in channels such as Ogcast Planet, Slacker Media, Slackware, a couple of others. My nick on IRC is not Klaatu. You can also reach me lately on Mastodon. My username there is at Klaatu at Mastodon.xyz. Of course, you can email me at klatu at member.fsf.org. That's klatu at member.fsf, as in free software foundation.org. And of course, you can visit my various websites, gnuworldorder.info and slackermedia.info. I will see you next time. Yeah.